You know what I love about that is it helps us just to put in perspective that these aren't stories. These aren't characters. These are real people, real personalities. Could you just imagine the disciples this week? They have walked with Jesus for roughly three years. And as they're walking into Jerusalem that morning, they know something is different. They know that Jesus is acting different. Jesus is coming with a different purpose. And see, what they don't recognize, what I don't think they're really getting, even though they have been told, is that Jesus was truly walking into Jerusalem for his very own death. He was literally walking into a city for a faithful, triumphant entry one last time. See, we're going to be in Matthew 21 today. But before we get into 21, Matthew 20, there's this moment. In Matthew 20, verse 18, before they walk into Jerusalem, Jesus literally says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus proclaims this all. Jesus makes it so clear what he is about to do. But I think it's crazy that the disciples just didn't let it click yet. See, they were struggling with this whole concept the entire time. See, when there's a moment when Peter was asked, who do you say I am? And Peter gets the answer right. That was mind-blowing for everyone in the room. See, even after that moment, they still struggled with accepting if Jesus really was who he said he was. After the death of Christ, they did not expect the resurrection, did they? They were so surprised. It's so interesting that they walked with Jesus for three years, and the trust issue was still there. Now, see, I don't say that to condemn these men. I say that because I kind of feel like maybe that's a little bit of an understanding in my own life. Because, see, trusting is so difficult. Trusting is so hard. And I don't think it's ever anything that we truly master. Can I be honest? I don't think that trusting the Lord is something that you just get figured out and then you never struggle with it ever again. I think if you're actually living for the Lord and living after the Lord and trying to live like the Lord, I think he's going to place you in places where you have to choose to trust, even though it doesn't feel natural. I don't think trust all throughout your life is going to feel like a natural decision. The disciples struggled with this concept of trusting, but here's what they recognized. They recognized something was different about this Jesus, and they couldn't get enough of him. They had to be near him. See, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the old song. My mother was a great fan, a big fan of Sandy Patty. And when I mean big fan, I mean had the same haircut. It was intense. But one thing I remember growing up, every single time we would drive to church, we would hear that song, On the Via de la Rosa, right? Killed me. Sounded like that woman singing in an earthquake. Here's what's up with this thing, though. The Via Della Rosa, the walk in which Jesus had with the cross on his back to the place in which he would give his life. Now, that was the pathway to his death, but I'm going to walk through today 
the words, the verbal via della rosa, if you will. See, I believe that Jesus said some things that led to his death. Jesus said things that caused him to be crucified. We have to remember this. Jesus planned to go into Jerusalem like I just read. Jesus planned to walk in. Jesus planned to be crucified. Jesus was giving his life for us. He wasn't murdered. He chose to. And I believe he was saying things out of honesty, knowing that they would get him to the cross because that's where he desired to go. Jesus did not want to escape death. He was running to death because of the reward, which was you and your relationship with the Father at the end of that task. See, Jesus volunteers. There's been numerous times in our country where there has been a draft for young men to go into battle. Now, Jesus wasn't drafted. Jesus volunteered. Jesus decides he didn't have to do it, but yet he chose. And so what's going on is is Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, knowing his death is coming. It was the time of the Passover. And this is when the the population of Jerusalem went from roughly, I believe, 300,000 anywhere to a million to seven million. Just completely boom. There are people everywhere. And then I want for you to picture this. How crazy is this? As Jesus is going to walk in or ride into Jerusalem, there's all of these people there. And one thing we have to recognize is because it was the Passover, they were also going to sacrifice in the temple. They were going to sacrifice. They were going to bring lambs from all over, from hundreds of miles away, from weeks and weeks of journeys. Many of them would bring lambs. Others would go buy lambs there. But there were thousands of lambs. Some people say that 260,000 lambs would be sacrificed on Passover every single year. So as Jesus is walking in, there are lambs everywhere. Jesus is riding in on this donkey, surrounded by all of these sheep that were being prepared for sacrifice. And I just think for a moment, to be in Jesus' mind and to look at all of these lambs and thinking, I'm about to do what they cannot do. I'm about to be the sacrifice. I really am the lamb to end all lambs. The sacrifice to end all sacrifice. There will be no more need for this when I am done. This will be the very last time that a sacrifice will ever be needed as I die on the cross for you. So let's look at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 for a moment. We're going to stop periodically. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples and saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now one thing I love that the video shows is that this is a really weird request. They are being asked to literally go and steal a donkey. Now, what does this show first? This shows his omniscience. This shows Jesus' omniscience. That big word simply means he knows 
everything. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knew exactly where to find the donkey. But see, in other um, accounts, we can see that it was the colt, right? It was not just a donkey, but the colt with her, unridden, never been ridden, unbroken. And he gives all of the information. But also, what does it show? It shows his omnipotence. He's able to get on this unwritten, small donkey. This is a weird picture, but the fact that this unwritten colt would allow him to ride it is a miracle in itself that I think people missed. See, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I wasn't around farm animals, animals very often, but I turned around and got sent to Haskell, Texas, which is this little farm town. And one day I got a request from the school board if I would be a part of a fundraiser they were doing. And it was called Donkey Basketball. You ever heard of this? Oh, little city boy learned a lot that day. And see, here's, they bring all of these people together. They bring all of these donkeys in. And you literally ride donkeys on a basketball court. And you're trying to play basketball while riding a donkey. Well, when I show up, the, the school board president says, hey, that, that's the guy I was telling you about which I have no idea what he's about to have planned for me. What I come to find out was that for entertainment purposes, they bring out one donkey that is crazier than all the other donkeys. They bring out one donkey that is not rideable, doesn't want to be ridden, and they find some guy that's too cocky and too much of an idiot to say no to ride him. And just so happened that I was that guy. And so sure enough, what happens? I am holding on for dear life for a 30-minute basketball game. I wasn't concerned about the ball. I was concerned about my survival. It was terrifying. Y'all, I literally walked off of the court with ripped pants or ripped shirt. When the donkey got tired of bucking, it would literally fall on the ground and roll over on its back and just look at me. It was the most entertaining thing for everybody else around. But heres I just say all that to say this. Donkeys are not the most gentle animal. You ever try to load a donkey into a trailer that doesn't want to go? It's not going to happen. See, the fact that Jesus was able with his power, even as a little glimpse of his deity. But then let's look at this, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So remember, he picks this donkey when he could have picked something else. See, the prophecy proclaimed that he would come in riding on a donkey. But remember, none of this is happenstance. None of this is by accident. Jesus planned out every event in his life before time ever began. And I believe if he wanted to come in riding on a rhino, he would have put that in the prophecy in the Old Testament. But in turn, what does he do? He chooses to have the prophets proclaim that he will come riding in on a donkey. Because I think God wanted to convey a couple of things. One of them being, I think God wants to convey that he wants to use the ordinary for extraordinary purposes. I really do. I think he wanted to show, I want to use what's normal, what seems average, what seems so unpredictable as being used for big purposes. And I want to use it for something Mighty. I want to show that I am willing to use something as a vehicle for my honor and for my glory that you may not expect. See, I'm just going to go ahead and venture to say that if you guys are like me, at times in your life you need to hear something along these lines. God finds you as valuable. God finds you as worthy. 
There's nothing that you have done that causes you to be invalid for the work of the Lord. There is no sin that you have done that has made you so unusable that God doesn't still want you and desire you and find purpose in you. I believe God chooses to use the ordinary for extraordinary purposes. That's just who he is. Old song that my parents used to sing all the time. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. So take my hands, Lord, and my feet. Touch my heart, Lord, speak through me. If you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. See, that, that's the business that God was in. What we see with Moses, what did he say? He gave Moses a staff, a simple rod, a simple piece of wood. And the miracles that God used that staff to perform, oh my goodness. Part of the Red Sea. They won battles holding that staff above their hand. That staff turned into a snake. He loves to use the ordinary. And I believe that applies to us. He doesn't need to use people that have all their acts together because there just isn't any of those that are uh, available, I imagine. Here's the truth. He loves to use imperfect people for his perfect purposes. But then it shows off the fact that he is fulfilling the prophecy. Everybody's waiting for the prophet, for the Messiah to come. Everybody's waiting for the Savior to come. And he's doing every single thing, fulfilling every single prophecy, showing that he is who he says he is. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought a donkey and the colt and put, them, put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, what they're screaming is Hosanna, which literally translated means save us. That I believe that they had a glimpse of that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe that they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah at this point. But here's what it is. They start to scream out a request that Jesus didn't come to fulfill. Hosanna, save us. They want to be saved from their Roman oppression. Remember, the Jews had been conquered by the Romans. I want for you to picture it like this. What if, let's just say, for instance, England came back. And England overthrew America. And in turn, not only that, but they got rid of everything that was American pride. They burned every American flag. They disbanded the military. They took away every single one of your weapons. They got rid of American currency and they burned the Constitution. Yeah, that would be pretty bad, right? Think about this. That's where they are. That's how they feel. They're so frustrated because the Romans are wiping away Jewish pride. And they want for Jesus to come in and to restore this. For Jesus to come in and to restore the Jews back, they basically want to flip-flop. Can you make us over the Romans? Can you make us into this population that dominates everything and everyone? But that's not why Jesus came. See, they start to wave these palm branches. But palm branches were truly a sign of Jewish pride. It was like waving a Jewish flag, if you will. So they're waving these palm branches. They're waving these signs of Jewish pride and then they throw down their coats. Now, what's interesting about throwing down their coats at the time was throwing down your coats and letting somebody walk over them, or in this case, the donkey ride over them, 
It's the concept of saying that you're submitting to them. You're submitting under their feet. I find it interesting that the Jews at this point have no problem submitting to Jesus as long as he is going to fulfill what they think is important. They have no problem submitting as long as he's going to do what they want him to do. They have no problem calling him Lord as long as he's going to be the Lord that they can mold and conform to their life rather than the other way around. So they throw down the coats to show obedience. But then Jesus starts to convey some things they don't like. See, he shows up on a donkey, which conveys humility. He doesn't come as a braggart. He comes on a common animal. That's turning some heads here. And then, not just humbly coming on a donkey, but a donkey conveyed something else as well. A donkey conveyed peace. See, they didn't want peace. They wanted war. They wanted a battle. They wanted a fight. And that's not what Jesus came to do. In Luke 2.14, when Jesus comes to earth as a baby in the manger, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. He's coming to bring peace. He's coming to be humble. He's coming to love, not to hate. And here's what the Jews really hated. What they weren't really catching was that he's coming out of love, not just for the Jews, but for mankind. He's coming not just to save the Jews from their sin. He's coming to save the world from their sin. See, Jesus doesn't have enemies. I want for you to understand that. Jesus doesn't look at different people groups and rank them in favor. And I believe that when he looks at the Romans and at the Jews, he goes, I'm coming to save you all out of love for all of you. See, once again, I believe that Jesus comes on this donkey to show his desire to use the ordinary for extraordinary purposes. But what about when Christ decides to use your ordinary life in extraordinary ways that you didn't see, that you didn't plan, that you didn't desire, that you didn't want, that you didn't ask for. See, it's great for God to do things for you that you desire and for what you want, but for God to use you in ways that you didn't ask for, that's when we become just like the Jews. See, what about instead of causing vengeance against the person that hurts you, what about if he restored them saved them, and blessed them? What, what about instead of fighting your battles for you, he loved the people that hurt you and restored his relationship with them instead of making you look better than them? I don't know if that's hitting anybody or just me. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They just got done calling him Hosanna in the highest. And I think things start to shift for many of them because when they're asked who he is, he's no longer Hosanna. He's no longer Messiah. He's no longer the Savior. Who has he become? He has become Jesus, the prophet. This is the prophet Jesus. He becomes, instead of being something holy, the Messiah, the Savior, he just becomes something ordinary. Jesus went from being the Messiah to just another teacher. See, in Luke 19, there's this moment when scribes and Pharisees come out and they're trying to ask Jesus to silence the crowd from his triumphant entry. 
And his reaction is a crazy claim to his deity. He says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out my praises. See, a lot of people want to argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. You're not reading scripture. Jesus claimed to be God so many different times. So the donkey was strike one. Not doing what they wanted him to do. Not coming in the way that they wanted him to come. Strike one. Strike two. He boldly claims to be the Messiah that they didn't desire. So then... We transition from there. Jesus goes from walking into Jerusalem. I want for you to understand this. Every event that we're covering today, it's like making one step closer and closer to the cross. One step closer and closer to his death. He doesn't care. He embraces where he is going. In Matthew 21, Jesus goes into the temple and Jesus sees some crazy things happening. And what we have record of is Jesus getting angry and flipping tables throwing money everywhere, driving out everyone out of the temple that was buying and selling, that was estimated to be 10,000 people on a Passover weekend at any given time. Jesus is driving them out. You want to know something that also shows God's power, his omnipotence? See, a few years before that, a few people got angry at in the temple during Passover, and they started to throw lemons at the chief priest. They got mad at the chief priest, so they literally threw a couple lemons at him. I don't know why they picked lemons. They should have picked something that would have hurt just a little bit more because the consequence for them was the chief priest ended up hiring mercenaries to come in and kill thousands of people. But Jesus has the ability to come in, to flip over tables. The temple security does nothing to him. I think people sensed the power of the Savior but it intimidated them. See, what's going on is Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to overthrow Rome. I'm coming to overthrow sin. And he, they want him to address the Romans, but he goes, before I can address the Romans, I need to address you. See, there's things going on in the temple that God was detesting. It wasn't the buying and selling that really bothered Jesus. Here's what was going on. It was turned into a market for greed. See, originally, the chief priest in the time of Moses was selected by God, and it was selected to be Aaron and his sons, and that was passed down and passed down and passed down to be the high priest. But then at one point, about 200, 150 to 200 years before Jesus came to earth, that stopped happening, and the right to be the chief priest became given to the highest bidder. So whoever wanted to be the chief priest could come in. And if you could pay the most money, you and your family got to be the high priest. And then things started to become pretty hairy. Things started to get extorted inside the temple. And so what happened, though, is they took animals and they brought them into the outer gates of the temple. So that people, and I understand this, and I personally don't think that this was the thing that upset the Lord, but so that people could come from out of town, buy an animal there instead of having to travel potentially hundreds of miles, and then sacrifice this animal. And there was, a, at the time, there were people that weren't farmers and things like that, so they didn't have livestock, so they would go and buy these sheep, these goats, whatever they needed at the temple. But here's the thing, they would upcharge, they would make the prices crazy, and in turn, what they would also do is they would put a temple tax 
on this. Now, also in the temple, they would not accept any other currency than a very specific Jewish currency that most people did not have. So you would have to exchange. In the text, there's mentioned money changers. So when money was changed, once again, that was another very high tax placed on the people. And when Jesus says, you've turned my my temple into a place of greed, into a den of thieves. It's because they're taking advantage of the people. See, another rule was this. If you brought your animal into the temple, that was allowed. You didn't have to buy your animal there. But if you brought, yours, brought your own, you would have to have it inspected. Somebody would look at it from head to toe and make sure that it fit the qualifications of a perfect, flawless animal. Well, what they were finding was the priests were being paid off to say that no animal coming from the outside was perfect or flawless. So that in turn, they could increase their money by making them pay the temple tax and these astronomical fees for the animals in which they needed. They are taking advantage of the Jewish people. So Jesus challenges what most people would have called the church of the day. And he's starting to scream and he gets angry and he gets upset because they are not representing him like he desires to be represented. See, what they wanted, the Jews wanted for Jesus to come and just simply yell at and get mad at and get angry at the Romans. They wanted him to fix their problems, but what they didn't expect is for him to say, there are problems in your life with you we have to fix. We have to get the log out of your own eye before we get the speck out of your brother's. And this, once again, is another step that leads him closer and closer to Jesus, or to death. See, what Jesus, Jesus did what was unexpected, what was unwanted. Jesus didn't simply come to be a part of Jerusalem. Hear this. Jesus took over Jerusalem. Jesus took it over. Jesus came to earth and took over the earth. Jesus went to death and took over death. When Jesus comes to something, Jesus takes over something. Jesus isn't simply a part of your life. He becomes your life. He is not something that revolves around you. When you say yes to Jesus, you revolve around him. And what they're not understanding is when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, whether they liked it or not, the king of kings had arrived. The Lord of lords had arrived. And when he shows up, here's what he's trying to say. Things are going to be done my way. Things are going to be done my way. And he's not going to settle. He has been kind. He has been loving. But guess what? When you say yes to Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, you're supposed to do things according to his way and his will. And I believe that Jesus expects that, demands that of us. Now, here's what's so interesting. The people just simply were not getting it. This is, once again, causing so much anger and frustration with them. They're getting so disappointed because Jesus is upset with Christians at the, day, at the time. He's upset with the people that call themselves church-going people rather than the world. Can I be honest with you guys for a minute? If Jesus came back in the flesh, I do not think he would go after the world with anger. I think he would come to Christians first with disappointment. I think he would first tell us, you know what you're supposed to do, but yet you don't do it. You know what's right and you know what's wrong, yet you don't live it. I think Jesus expects for the lost to live like the lost. Let's just be honest. But I think his real frustration 
wouldn't be the lost. It would be the people that call themselves Christians but do not represent him well. And then lastly, here's what we're going to cover. There's this moment in Luke 20. After Jesus clears the temple, after he comes on his triumphant entry, there's one more thing I find so interesting. Another thing that caused so many problems. See, there's this moment when Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leader, the chief priests, decided they wanted to lay hands on Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so in Luke 20, or yeah, Luke 20, verse 20, it says they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They don't feel this way, they're lying. Now, of course, Jesus can see through this, right? Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute, pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now see, at the time, Caesar, the Roman governors, the Roman officials were taxing the Jews on everything on everything they could. And there was something that they even called a head tax. It just meant you had to pay for every single person in your family. You had to pay a fee just for them to exist. And so they're getting taxed. It's frustrating. Remember, these people have taken over uh, the Jewish people. They have taken away Jewish pride. And now they're making them pay taxes into a community that they don't appreciate and they don't want. But then here's what's going on. They say, should we pay taxes or not? They're trying to catch Jesus because if Jesus says, don't pay taxes, he's going to be persecuted by Rome. The Romans are going to come after him. The Romans are going to hate him. But if he says, go ahead and pay your taxes, then the Jews are going to hate him. And it's basically this moment where the Jews are forcing him to pick a side. Are you for Rome or are you for your people? Are you for the Romans or are you for the Jews? Who are you here for? And Jesus doesn't play that game. Here's what's so interesting. He preaches a message that none of them get. See, on this Roman coin, on this Roman denarius, there was two phrases, two things that were said. And on one side of the coin, it was a picture of Caesar. See, the Jews weren't even allowed to technically own this coin because it was considered a graven image, an idol. They technically weren't even allowed to have it. But to make matters even worse, on this coin, it said, son of divine Augustus. Caesar is claiming deity on this coin. It's a graven image, graven with the likeness of Caesar claiming to be God. And on the other side, it says that he, is the high priest. Caesar claimed on this coin to be the high priest and to be the Lord. Who was God? Jesus. Who was the son of God? Jesus. Who was the high priest? Jesus. And Jesus's response is simply give it back to whoever it belongs to. See, who does it resemble? Caesar. Give it to Caesar. What is Caesar's? What belongs to Caesar? Give it to Caesar. It's made by him. It's made in his likeness. Give it to him. Here's what the Jews missed. See, what the Jews missed is that we were created in the likeness of Jesus, by Jesus. 
And in turn, here's what he's trying to proclaim. He, here is the message under the message that they missed. In Genesis 1, all the Jewish people would have had this memorized. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. When he says, whose image is this made out of? Whose likeness is this coin made out of? Give it back to him. What is he telling us? What is he telling the Jews? I made you. You're made in my image, in my likeness by me. Give your life back to me. See, they were so set on belittling him. They were so frustrated because he was not who they wanted him to be. But he says, I didn't come simply to save you. I came to save you and in turn, your job, your responsibility is to serve me, to love me, to follow after me. I didn't come to follow you. I came so that you could follow me. I think that's what we're missing. And that's why the Jews had so many issues. They were not willing to follow a savior that didn't do what they wanted to be done. But here's what they needed to understand. Can I just say something really harsh I've been debating about saying all week? Jesus did not die for your happiness. Can I go ahead and throw that out there? Jesus did not die for your happiness. He does not exist to make you happy. That's not why you were created, so that he'd have somebody to serve and to make happy. He created you so that you could serve him, love him. And in turn, that love, that joy is reciprocated and appreciated. But God did not create you simply to make you happy. Quit looking for a Jesus that is simply going to meet every one of your earthly desires. That's not why he came. That's not why he created you. He did not create you so you would be happy on this earth. He came to restore the relationship that you had with the Lord so that in turn you could have right relationship with the Father. Listen, in a moment, we're going to have the altar call. Please, if you have questions about your salvation, talk to myself, talk to Brother Jeremy. But for the rest of us, would you examine your life for the next few minutes? Would you ask yourself, is there's points in your life where you recognize that you're trying to shape Jesus to be something instead of being shaped into the likeness of Jesus? Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to spend time with you. God, I pray you help us to not make much of ourselves, to not make much of our will, but rather, Lord, to make much of you. God, I pray for the people in here that don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you'll give them boldness. You'll open up the hardened hearts, Lord. In your name we pray.